right, before I introduce the speakers, um, just to remind people, the code is posted on the wall for CMEXEZD. For nurses here, you have to stay here for 80% of the session to be able to claim credit, and you have to fill out the, um, uh, whatever it's called, the review form thing. And um, neither of our speakers have any conflicts that need to be mentioned. All right, and David is here, so we can start. Key <laughs> participant. So the um, presentation today entitled HIV Cluster Investigation Among People Who Inject Drugs and Inpatient Prevention Care um, is sort of half as a title because that's what we're going to hear about from Massachusetts, and then there's going to be um, a follow up for sort of state of where we are at in New Hampshire pertinent to this presentation. Uh, so, for that, we have two people. Um, Kathleen Roosevelt is going to start, who's um, not come up here from Massachusetts because she's actually up here on vacation. But, uh, <laughs> so, thank you for popping over. Uh, but uh, is in Massachusetts, currently the director of the Division of Sexually Transmitted Disease Prevention at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. She's been there, I think, for about 10 years or so in the health department. Um, after spending time at the Parker's AIDS Research Center, um, subsequent to getting her degrees from Barnard and Columbia. And then um, following will be Lindsay Pierce, who many of us know from our own health department. Uh, Lindsay got her degrees from New England College uh, before spending time working with Planned Parenthood, but then has been with the health department in New Hampshire also for about 10 years and has been the chief of the Infectious Disease Prevention Investigation and Care Services section since 2015. Her uh, bio says three years and three months. So um, we're going to start with Kathleen and then transition over to Lindsay. So thanks to both of you. Great, thank you so much. So I'm Kathleen Roosevelt. I'm the director of the Division of STD Prevention and HIV Surveillance. I'm here today to talk about a cluster investigation of HIV cases among people who inject drugs. And in doing so, I will talk about how the state health department in Massachusetts interacts with physicians in our community and with the CDC, who are our um, federal government funders. And I will touch um, upon the investigation that is ongoing at the moment. Um, and then briefly discuss the prevention approaches. I'll break up my talk into four sections, um, and I'll start off with a little bit of, about the public health background. Um, so as the director of STD prevention and HIV surveillance, I oversee a team of about 45 individuals, which includes research analysts, field epidemiologists, uh, surveillance epidemiologists, and clinicians, and we receive tens of thousands of disease reports every year um, from both clinicians and laboratories for uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and HIV. And my team analyzes the data for these reports and then prioritizes the reported cases for follow-up. Um, and the follow-up's done by either a public health nurse or, um, um, or by our field epidemiologists. And um, in Massachusetts, we set the priorities at the state level because our reporting regulations give us jurisdiction 
over all of, of Massachusetts, the entire state. But across the country, follow-up can look very different based on local re regulations and localized priorities. So currently in Massachusetts, follow-up for high-priority infections includes offering of partner services to the individual who's been diagnosed with that infection. Contact tracing is really the core function of partner services, and that's the identification and follow-up of persons who've made, who may have been exposed to an infection. So partner services also includes the verification of treatment and symptoms, and often includes referrals to other health services such as mental health services or syringe service programs. So it's a very resource intensive uh, service, um, but its principles are that it's voluntary, it's confidential, it's client-centered, and it's a, a standard of public health practice. So in Massachusetts, partner services um, really relies on timely and complete information being reported for a case. And that information is reported to, the, um, to our health department, to what we call the reactor desk. And it's then um, reviewed, and um, each piece of information is um, looked at to see if it meets the qualifications for a priority case. And cases that do are sent to our field operations managers, who then review the case again and assign to a field epidemiologist, who then calls the provider to gather more information before reaching out to a patient to schedule an interview uh, about, the, about the infection that we try to prioritize um, in a clinic or um, at least an in-person an in -person, um, meeting. The um, field epidemiologists then interview the patients about sex and needle sharing partners and then contacts all of these partners who were named to, to him or her um, and facilitates the testing or treatment if appropriate for those partners. And if any of those partners are positive, then this whole process starts again. So currently in Massachusetts, people receive follow-up if they're diagnosed with acute HIV or if they have any evidence of drug use. Um, and they have HIV, which we either, we, which we ascertain either by provider report um, or if they have evidence of a concurrent hepatitis C infection, then we also initiate follow-up. Um, we initiate follow-up for infectious syphilis cases and for septriaxone-resistant gonorrhea, if we were to see it. Um, and we also honor requests from providers and patients um, for partner services. But what's important to note is that we don't currently routinely follow up on new HIV diagnoses, um, but we will start to do this in the fall, and we've hired new staff to do so, so we've doubled in size uh, to accommodate the uh, routine HIV follow-up that we plan. Um, and right now, those field epidemiologists that we've hired are undergoing a rigorous training period. Um, and part of why they need such a rigorous training period is because they uh, need to be experts in both contact tracing and in referring to a wide range of health promotion services, which are not always so easy to navigate. So these services include um, syringe service programs, which have grown rapidly in Massachusetts in the past couple of years, um, and also a range of other counseling 
and testing and treatment services. So now that I've given you a little bit of the background, um, we will move on to the numbers for Massachusetts. So in, in recent years in our state, we've seen an overall decreasing HIV epidemic. This chart shows the number of new infections um, since 2006, and overall, there's been about a 23% decline in new HIV diagnoses in Massachusetts. And even though our overall HIV diagnoses have decreased, when we stratify the diagnoses by risk, we see a very different story emerge. This figure shows the infections diagnosed among people who inject drugs. Um, and, um, and from 2006 to 2014, you can see that the numbers were declining overall. Um, but since 2014, we've seen a significant rise in cases among this population. And one of the challenges that we deal with in Massachusetts is that in general, we only know this risk information um, because it was reported to us by a provider on a case reporting form. Um, and we recently started thinking of ways that we could gain more knowledge and a better picture of trends in the HIV epidemic. And so, um, so one of those ways is the partner services interviews that I talked about a few minutes ago and routinizing those across the state. But another way that we've started to embark on is the molecular <coughs> epidemiology and molecular surveillance. So I'm gonna briefly diverge and talk about molecular epidemiology right now um, and just say that it's a practice that's very new to us in Massachusetts. So what it entails is that we collect the HIV genotype information we analyze it, and because we know that people who are infected with very similar viruses are um, in a common network, we can also say that there's probably recent transmission going on in those, in, in those networks. Um, the way that we analyze the genotypes is by feeding the list of HIV sequences into software that we, um, that we've ha we have actually that was developed by the CDC that is able to compare sequences rapidly to one another, and then spit out a percentage of how similar or different the sequences are. So for example, if we have a cluster of HIV sequences that are only one and a half percent different from one another, we consider these pretty related. Um, however, we can't say anything about the directionality of transmission or who infected whom, um, uh, like we could with um, the partner services data that we have. But so now getting back onto the topic, the reason that we started looking at these sequences is actually because of the signal that we started to detect of new HIV cases among people who inject drugs. So in mid-2016, um, one of the community health centers in the Northeast started to let us know that, there were, that they were noticing a sudden increase in new HIV diagnoses among people who inject drugs and that the people who they were testing were not only injecting drugs, but also experiencing homelessness. Um, and then since 2016, more cases have been diagnosed and the molecular analysis of HIV viruses that we've used have um, been able to link other cases that were not previously known to be part of the cluster um, back to the cluster. So we started to really um, tried to figure out what was going on with the signal, and, um, and we uh, started to focus a lot of resources 
on the link between the opioid epidemic and the HIV um, cases that we were seeing. And what we saw when we looked was that there was a changing opioid epidemic occurring in Massachusetts. Um, and one of the most concerning things was that we were starting to see far more deaths than had occurred in previous years. And this opioid epidemic was causing more deaths in certain regions of the state. Um, so the top two lines in this figure actually represent two cities in the northeast region of the state, Lawrence and Lowell. And this was the region where we first started hearing the signals from providers that they were diagnosing more HIV among people who inject drugs. So we were seeing both infections and opioid-related deaths increase. And when we looked even further into the data, we found that the increase in opioid deaths across the state was really due to fentanyl's arrival in the drug supply. And it's a bit hard to see in this graph, um, um, but the top line shows that since 2014, there's been a sharp rise of fentanyl detected among overdose deaths, deaths in Massachusetts. So we knew that we had this initial cluster of cases that was reported to us among people who inject drugs. We wanted to know if there were more cases, um, and, um, and we wanted to know if there were cases that we didn't have the risk information for, or if there were undiagnosed individuals who were in the population. So we asked our field epidemiologists to perform enhanced in-depth interviews of, of the cases that we knew about. We increased our outreach to healthcare providers uh, about what they were seeing. And we asked laboratories about increasing reporting of molecular sequence data. And what we started to see was that the cases that were being reported had addresses all around the state. Um, and they were reported, especially with their laboratory reports, with addresses that came from also other states, um, like such as New Hampshire. But then when we deployed field epidemiologists to interview and follow up with these individuals, they actually were not living in the places that they had reported that they, uh, on their laboratory cases that they, they lived. They were mostly homeless and they had, and many of them had relocated to the cities of Lawrence and Lowell. And as probably many of you are aware, these cities um, where we started to focus our effort, our efforts are in the northern part of the state. And you can see that Lawrence and Lowell um, border New Hampshire. So as we investigated, it became clear that we were really seeing a true cluster of cases among people who inject drugs in the northeast region of the state and that the cases were primarily among U.S.-born, white, non-Hispanic individuals who were between 20 and 39 years of age. <coughs> um, we deployed field epidemiologists to follow up on all of the cases that had any evidence of IV drug use and we ascertained this evidence by uh, this, this risk factor by either provider report or by using hepatitis C as a proxy for drug use. And we ramped up our molecular surveillance and, and then finally we formally requested the help of the CDC um, in the form of an FEAID to, um, 
help investigate our, our cluster. So, a bit about the timeline. Um, August of 2016 is when we first confirmed that the cluster of cases seemed related um, and all had factors of injection drug use and homelessness. We meet, immediately started to engage local stakeholders, including providers in the community, at community health centers, and at other service organizations in the area. We continue to investigate the cases and support prevention efforts. However, even with this, this local outreach and investigation, um, we really continue to see a rise in cases in the population. Um, and, and, then, and that prompted us to say, you know, we need some help on the ground here from the CDC. So in April of 2018, it was when we requested the CDC to come and help us um, in Massachusetts on the ground. So the main goals of the FDA were to rapidly assess the HIV epidemiology, construct and visualize and interpret the molecular and epidemiologic networks, conduct in-depth interviews of the people who inject drugs, and provide recommendations to us at the state and local level about what we can do. However, it's important to note that case finding was not a part of this FEA. Um, in general, uh, it is a part of an FEA. However, um, in the case, the case in Massachusetts is that we had very strict privacy laws, and that prevented us from sharing the names of individuals who were uh, diagnosed with HIV with our federal partners. And because of that, that meant that the case finding still fell on um, the local um, and the and the um, and us at the state health department. Um, but in the end, so what we did was concentrate on three three key questions, um, which was why here, why now, and what can we do about it. So the first major accomplishment of the FEA was to create a case definition, and the case definition for the the cluster was a bit different than what we're used to working with um, because since the population uh, of people who we were seeing um, were injecting drugs and were very transient, we couldn't use a normal person, place, and time characteristics to assess the epidemic. The cases were being diagnosed all over the state and um, especially because some cases were transported to hospitals <coughs> to receive emergency care or were incarcerated when they were diagnosed, we couldn't use that the residents at diagnosis to indicate <coughs> that they were or were not um, part of this epidemic or this outbreak. So what we ended up doing was looking closely at um, all of the cases that linked, that linked them back to the Northeast region. And, um, and we looked at the facility of diagnosis, whether they were reported as being recently homeless in Lawrence or Lowell or participating in drug use in the cities of Lawrence and Lowell, or if they named a partner who had um, shared some of these characteristics. And finally, we determined that we needed to cast even a wider net and look at the molecular data and the individuals who were molecularly linked to the cluster. And we just decided that 
we would define a linkage as a genetic distance threshold of 1.5% or less. So we found 129 cases that, made, that met our case definition, and the molecular analysis actually identified more than 40 additional cases that had not been originally known to be linked to our investigation. And some of these cases that were identified through the molecular analysis then subsequently were identified to have epi connections to Lawrence and Mole. So we were able to create our epi curve and when we did, um, we included epidemiologically and molecularly linked individuals, and we saw that it was overwhelmingly clear that people who inject drugs were, um, were, were certainly being diagnosed at higher rates uh, with HIV. So the investigation is ongoing, but as of mid-July, there were 129 cases that were identified as part of the cluster. And the cases uh, were mostly molecularly linked and also um, epi-linked. And what we found was that although they were molecularly linked, they weren't all um, linked in the same way um, and with the same threshold. And we think that there are that this means that there's evidence that there were several introductions of HIV into the region, not just one introduction of HIV. And um, these cases have key similarities. So in, this includes the demographics. So most of the cases were between the ages of 20 and 39 years old. Both males and females were affected. However, males were affected um, marginally more than females. And most were white and US born and had recently experienced homelessness. Most uh, lived in Middlesex, um, or Essex County, or were, or were living um, and experiencing homelessness in those, in those counties. And over 90% had evidence of hepatitis C infection, either at the time of diagnosis or before. So as I mentioned before, part of the CDC's role in the FDA was to perform in-depth interviews, especially among people identified as actively or recently using injection drugs. And one of the major findings from these interviews was that risk behaviors were not limited to sharing needles or sharing injection equipment. Sex risk started to emerge as a factor in the interviews, and many of those identified reported that they did not talk about HIV with their partners, either sex or needle sharing partners. And at the same time, they were having um, transactional sex, so sex for money and for drugs. The interviews also revealed a lot about the frequency of drug use and the attitudes towards fentanyl. So many people reported that they used heroin, but upon further questioning admitted that it was not heroin, but was in fact fentanyl, which has a shorter half-life than heroin and therefore needs to be injected more frequently. But it also revealed that there were negative perceptions of fentanyl, and um, and people shared that they also knew not to um, not to share syringes, and that they tried to use clean needles, but they didn't know as much about um, not sharing works or other um, equipment. 
And they also shared that in the moment, although they knew better a lot of the time, they um, were reusing syringes. So one of the um, one of the real significant findings of the FDA was that fentanyl really seemed to do, to be driving behavior change, and it was causing more injection, more time intoxicated, and it was contributing to sexual risk behavior. So evidence, especially collected during the interviews that were conducted as part of the FDA, pointed to a kind of takeover of fentanyl among people who inject drugs around 2015 and a draw to the Lawrence and Lowell areas, especially because of how inexpensive the drugs were in the cities. So it seems like, so, so what, they, what they reported was that in Lawrence, um, the drugs were very, very cheap. They were about three times as expensive in, as, um, in, in Lowell, and then they were about five times as expensive in Manchester. So this really drew people into the Lawrence area, and it attracted people from, from elsewhere. So it seemed like this evidence started to answer the questions of why here and, and why now. Which leaves us with the question of what can be changed to reduce infections. And I certainly don't claim to have all the answers, but I'm going to wrap up by briefly talking about prevention efforts and the efforts that are ongoing. So one of the most important things that, um, that I think we did as a state health department was start with early, um, start early with our community engagement. And it, it continues. Um, so we're actively reaching out to programs to share, to share our knowledge with them and to ask them to share what they're seeing with us. And we're continuing case finding efforts through both partner services and through testing efforts. And we're monitoring outreach and, and testing for people who report IV drug use as a risk factor. So interviews have been initiated for more than 70% of the patients who are involved in the cluster, and 75% of those interviews have been completed. Um, and it's not depicted here, but a recent analysis uh, indicates that over 40% of the partners who were named were um, tested and tested um, positive as a new HIV case, which is an excellent result for case finding, but also tells us that there's significant ongoing transmission And although syringe service programs exist in Massachusetts and have increased significantly in recent years from um, about five programs about five years ago to over 20 programs today, uh, the number of syringes just can't keep up with the number of injections um, that people need or um, if, if they're using fentanyl. In addition to syringe service programs, access to medication-assisted therapy and other medical services are, are essential to disrupting transmission. Um, and other services that deserve mentioning include behavioral health services, housing services, and coordination and outreach. Um, both providers that were talked to during the FDA and um, the, the clients that were, were spoken to 
talked about how key social stability is for adherence to ART and how much of a problem and how difficult it is um, being homeless and staying on meds. So we know that there's a lot to be done and that the services are resource inten intensive. However, we've been encouraged that there, that there are established programs that exist in the communities that have been affected and that these programs are incredibly willing to work with us in public health at both the state level and the national level. And, um, at, at, and we can continue this investigation. So that's, that's all I have for now for the story, but thank you so much for inviting me here. And um, thank you to all the people who contributed to the game. objectives and um, very similar outlines, a little out of order compared to um, Kathleen's review of Massachusetts. We're going to start off with some surveillance and epidemiology for New Hampshire just to let you know the differences of what's going on here. Um, we've, had a, we've seen a slow but sustained decrease in new HIV infections among New Hampshire residents from 2006 to 2017, similar to what Massachusetts was seeing. Um, it's been a decrease about 31% since 2006 about 41 percent if we go all the way back to 2000. From 2012 to 2017, we've seen, um, sorry, we've seen um, an average of about 37 cases per year. When we look at those individuals who are newly diagnosed with HIV and look for those that are reporting injection drug use, this is where we see a bit of a different change. Um, the highest diagnosis, number of new diagnoses among people who inject drugs um, previously was back in 2004, and now we're seeing this spike again in 2017. Again, much smaller numbers compared to Massachusetts, but a very similar trend. And then when we look um, specifically about the percentage of those diagnoses in any given year, we see um, the effect that injection drug use is having. So the bars on When you're looking at um, the axis on the left, the bars are showing you the percentage of all cases for each year with any reported injection drug use. That's in the blue. And then the no injection drug use is reported in the orange. While we've had fewer persons diagnosed with HIV each year, more of these individuals are reported among people who have <coughs> drugs. In 2017, specifically, we saw nearly one in four persons newly diagnosed with HIV in New Hampshire reporting injection drug use. And we're seeing a similar trend in 20, 2018. The black line here, using the axis on the right, is showing us the percentage of all cases for each year with IV <coughs> as their primary primary reported risk. And when we went back looking all the way back to 2000, 
we found that 2017 was 9% of all persons newly diagnosed with HIV reporting injection drug use as their primary risk factor was the highest proportion of any year. <coughs> at the same time, we were seeing similar trends as Massachusetts when we looked at our overdose death information. And so this is from our New Hampshire Drug Monitoring Initiative. And you see here the blue line being all drug deaths, the red line being those associated with fentanyl and heroin, and then the purple line being um, cocaine-related deaths. So we're seeing very similar trends to what new, new, um, Massachusetts has seen. So we know that we have an increase of overdose deaths. Um, unfortunately, we've been one of the leading um, country states in the country with overdose death rates. And we know that we're seeing this increase of injection drug use. So we already had this on our radar and had services in place. We have limited federal funds that come into the state for these services. And what we're able to provide are integrated STD testing and treatment, HIV and hepatitis C testing and linkage to care sites. Those are in our two cities, Nashville and Manchester. They're run by the city health departments. We also have three county jails that we have HIV and HCV screening programs in where um, individuals, testers go into those county jails at certain times of the month and are able to provide um, free screening for those who request screening or voluntarily come forward for screening as HIV and HCV is not routinely um, provided in the county jails. We have early intervention services. We put these into the community and pre-exposure prophylaxis clinics um, at our Planned Parenthood and Equality Health Center in Concord. So looking specifically at um, risk reduction, HIV testing, linkage to care and health education, and in one community health center around their primary care population. And then we have five locations across the state which house our AIDS service organizations, which is assisting individuals who are already diagnosed with HIV and getting them connected to the many services that they need. And then we have referral to substance use disorder treatment at all of these facilities through all of these um, efforts. And I put the link to the treatment locator on here in the effort of saving time. I'm not going to go deeply into that, but some of you may be familiar. This is a kind of hub to be able to go to be able to find resources for people who are seeking substance use disorder treatment. And then in um, 2017, in June of 2017, we had syringe services legalized in New Hampshire. This was an ongoing effort um, the year previous. At this time, we have two operating syringe service programs in New Hampshire that cover the Seacoast area in Nashua. And as the state health department, we have no um, oversight over these, these programs other than just collecting information from them. And so we have our first year of data available, and that shows to us that, that they have reported to us about um, just over 54,000 new syringes that they've distributed and that they've collected just over 16,000 back. We've also seen that they're able to get naloxone kits um, distributed to the individuals who are accessing those services, although we see a huge gap in providing infectious disease services around HIV testing, HCV testing, as well as referral to substance use disorder treatment. These are backpack programs, they're secondary exchanges, they're not your brick and mortar um, syringe service programs, and so these are individuals that are primarily volunteering their time to go out into their communities, and it takes time to build trust with these programs. They've both only been in existence for less than a year, or for just about a year for one of them, um, and so we expect this to grow over time, um, and also they have limitations of being a backpack-based program or a secondary exchange, and the fact that 
you really need a certain amount of um, resource to be able to be delivering infectious disease services like HIV and HCV testing in the field. So we hope to see this grow now that it has legalized and we get more funding to come into the state for it. We did um, apply to the CDC for a determination of need that would allow us to take federal funds and direct it towards certain service programs, but we learned that we need to work with our state legislature around the language and the law to allow us to do so. So moving on to partner services to tell you a little bit about how we um, do investigations here in New Hampshire. So as Kathleen shared, there's certain criteria in each state on what reports that come into the health department get investigated um, and to what level. And so in New Hampshire, we provide partner services to individuals who are in, all new individuals that are newly diagnosed with HIV, including requests by people who are already living with HIV and AIDS at any time during, um, after diagnosis, they can come back to us and ask us for assistance in notifying partners. We also follow up um, with individuals who are diagnosed with infectious syphilis, and we're following up with all new um, gonorrhea infections. And part of that is in response to an outbreak that we've been, ex an ongoing outbreak we've been experiencing since 2016. Who's doing this work? We don't have 18 field deputies like the state of Massachusetts. Um, we have three people in two and a half FTEs that provide this work. It's a public health nurse and one of our infectious disease care coordinators who's here today, Rachel Cush, many of you may know her from um, working with her with patients. I'm in a part-time infectious disease care coordinator. So we're trying to cover the entire state with fewer people um, and geographically some challenges there. So even though we have smaller numbers, there's still a challenge in reaching everybody where they're at. And so, it looks like this came up a little funny, but like Kathleen was explaining, um, we have reports that come into the health department, they go to our infectious disease surveillance section. Um, our staff there get back in touch with providers if there's any missing information. Those then go to a public health nurse manager. She assigns those out to either the public health nurse or in the case of HIV, an infectious disease care coordinator. Unlike Massachusetts, the majority of the work that we do in reaching clients is done by the phone. And that just has to do with geographical challenges of reaching people in a timely manner. Um, and then ideally, if we're able to see people face-to-face -face for linkage to care and offer partner services, that's what we like to do. And so we've got wonderful partners throughout the state, including our Dartmouth providers, where we're able to just go right in and see the patient when they come to their first medical visit and ensure that that linkage takes place. We um, do less notification via the internet. Um, Geolocating apps are much more popular than website, meetup websites used to be, at least when I started being a DIS 10 years ago. We used um, online a lot, but now it's much more geolocators um, that are being used. So. Our um, care coordinators go out into the community, but also if the phone number is available, they try to reach partners by the phone. And then again, it loops around in the fact that it goes back to that medical provider for anyone who may test positive. So what happened here in New Hampshire? We saw a significant increase in the number of individuals newly diagnosed with HIV who reported injection drug use. Again, going back to that, tw about 24% or a quarter um, of cases between 2017 and mid-2018, we saw we were reporting injection drug use and the majority were living in Hillsborough County. And so we sent out, hopefully many of you in this room received it, um, a health alert saying that we we're seeing this concerning trend and trying to find um, ways to further investigate it. What we found through our investigations and speaking to people, because we were following up with everyone who was newly diagnosed, was that 
um, Hillsborough County accounted for the majority of um, individuals, but they didn't necessarily live in Manchester, similar to what Kathleen said. The more that you talked to individuals, you found out that they lived in different parts of the state, but they were going into Manchester to buy their drugs, use their drugs, um, buy their sex, or to have sex. We also start during that same time, um, hepatitis C, new, infection, new infections of hepatitis C became reportable in um, November of 2016, and so we finally had some information about what hepatitis C actually looked like in New Hampshire, and we were seeing that 85% um, of cases between November of 16 to April of 2018 reported ever injecting drugs, and that 65% reported current drug use. Most of that information was coming from disease report forms from providers, and then a limited amount was coming through confirmation through actually interviewing the patient. So while this was going on, I knew that in Massachusetts, their investigation was ongoing. And so we knew that we were in close proximity to Lowell and Lawrence. We knew that they were experiencing an outbreak, and so we were also asking questions about whether or not any of the patients that we were coming in contact with had connections to Lowell and Lawrence. Um, and as we were investigating a particular case in the city of Manchester, we saw a lot of similarities. So we had the original patient was homeless, living in an encampment. It was an individual who injected drugs, but was new to needle sharing and happened to be inpatient what, for what ended up being seroconversion sickness um, at the time of their diagnosis. And what became incredibly challenging was that this particular individual signed themselves out of the hospital AMA before the diagnosis was presented to them. And so we had an individual that was part of a very marginalized population, incredibly hard to reach, um, it took the care coordinator visiting four possible addresses, a homeless shelter, and trying six phone numbers before she ultimately reached the individual, and it just seemed luck that that sixth phone number actually worked, and that this person had a working phone. That phone number ended up being the patient's spouse's alternative phone number on their Medicaid application. So that's how deep we had to dig to try to locate them. Knowing that we traditionally do a lot of our outreach by the phone, there was a significant shift in how we tried to reach individuals related to this investigation. Um, and it was very intensive because we didn't have these things already set. We had connections in the city of Manchester with our city health department, um, but we had to utilize um, them and their connections within the city to really try to find these individuals and get them connected to testing and care. For most of them, because we were um, dealing with a population that is pretty poor historians, um, but also, there's a lot of casual relationships, so you don't necessarily know someone's name, and you've got physical descriptions. Occasionally, there was a phone number available. Um, then, when we were able to find those folks, they needed transportation to even get in for testing. And um, we ran into problems such as um, people who, we had a number of, of um, contacts who were active drug dealers, and so they really didn't want to be asked to go to a particular location at a particular time. We had a number of people who had warrants out for their arrest, and so we tried to be as creative as possible and really appreciated our community partners who um, were flexible in seeing those individuals because there was a lot of trust that needed to be created to get them in for screening. 
They also had concerns that were way bigger to them than getting tested for HIV or hepatitis C. That was our concern. We were coming to them and that was our concern, but they were worried about where am I gonna get my next meal? I need a tent because my tent's falling apart in the encampment. Um, I need new syringes. There's no syringe service program active in the city of Manchester, um, and obviously transportation's an issue for them. They were worried about clothing and footwear. Um, so there were many things that were more important to them. Um, Rachel tells the story so well of when she finally connected with the original patient, um, they were very adamant that they could not see the provider that day because they wanted to get a shower. They could not go to a doctor's office until they got showered in clean clothes. And it took a lot of convincing on the part of um, Rachel and the infectious disease nurse to convince this individual that it was okay to just come in. But really that was such a barrier um, for so many of these folks. So overall, that um, original patient provided information for 20 contacts. They were all people who inject drugs, 19 of the 20 were homeless. We were able to notify 17 out of the 20 um, and 10, 50% presented for testing. Again, there was a lot of fear about coming in and a lot of follow-up provided. We were fortunate in that there was only one other acute infection identified in this group, and that was um, the spouse of the original patient, who was a sex and needle sharing partner. For us in New Hampshire, we do not have molecular surveillance um, capability at this time, although part of our investigation was working with the CDC to try to put this in motion, and it just so happened that this was happening in April of 2018 when it started, and that was just so happened to be the time that the FDA was in Massachusetts. And so we were able to um, work closely to try to facilitate getting these resources here in New Hampshire so that we can better determine if there are additional links, um, especially in, in cases of injection drug use. But what became really significant to us in this acute HIV investigation was the need for um, community partner mobilizations. We couldn't have done it without our city health department staff. We worked very closely with a healthcare clinic for homeless individuals in Manchester and have since initiated um, a HIV and HCV testing program there because they have very limited testing capability prior to that. Um, that clinic is located in the, the basement of a homeless shelter, so we worked closely with the homeless shelter to get the word out to get people referred in for testing. Um, the infectious disease providers and their staff in the community were very key for us, again, meeting people where they were at and getting them the services that they need. We have limitations in the fact that we can't transport clients, so transportation was really key to getting these folks in. Um, again, I mentioned people um, had warrants up but also got arrested throughout the course of this um, investigation, and so we worked with county corrections around that. Our each service organization case managers were key to getting individuals in and finding out other services. Again, housing, that stable housing is so important, especially for the two individuals um, who were newly diagnosed. We knew the importance of trying to find them stable housing, and, and we're still working on getting them to a place where they'll be able to access that. Um, and then a neighboring syringe service program was able to come in and provide secondary exchange, which was really key because as I mentioned, Manchester does not have a program, a syringe service program at this time. So we're continuing to learn from this um, experience and learn from the experience in, in Massachusetts to be able to take steps forward to ensure that we're able to um, provide services to people at greatest risk. Can take questions? Oh, right. well, thank you very much. Any questions for our two speakers?
latest on Manchester's um, interest in and capacity to support needle exchange programs. Uh, are we going to have a fire department for this fire anytime soon? Um, so we have, we did definitely make some progress based on this particular investigation and, and due to the fact that the patient at diagnosis had such a high viral load and was new to um, needle sharing was very concerning to us. Um, and so we do have interest there. At this point, um, so the, in April, the thought was that we would see a, a program stood up by the end of summer. And I haven't heard, we're at the end of summer, and um, I haven't heard of it an exact date yet, but I know that there's, there's interest and there's partnership being developed within the city. Um, there's, there are funding needs to be able to um, stand up a syringe service program, and really it's the staffing that, that is the most expensive. Um, and so I think that they're being trying to be creative with that, but my hope is that by the end of the year, we'll see a program. I was hoping by the end of the summer, but there's definitely interest. And there's a high need for um, remote disposal too. So not just you, there's in, in the New Hampshire law, you don't have to have a one-to-one -one exchange. But when we're, when we're working with people who are living in homeless encampments, they need other places to be able to, you know, they're not gonna carry around a big syringe barrel with them all the time. So we need to be able to find ways to be able to help them on a more consistent basis for disposal. Yeah, yeah, the uh, original patient in this case currently has a giant sharps container in his tent, but he can't get it to the right place when there's someone who can take it. It's definitely a problem. Um, I have a question to start with Massachusetts and then think about us as providers here in New Hampshire. Is um, from when you find a new, is there any efforts to expedite the time from the new diagnosis to the first appointment? And are, are people being started on um, antiretrovirals the day of their first appointment and sort of um yeah so um so for acute HIV cases um we actually have a, a 24 hours a day seven days a week response from our um, field epidemiologists and the goal is to get them linked to a provider and hopefully started as soon as possible um, on ART um, it, that you know, is at the discretion of the provider, but we generally suggest and, and point to evidence that the sooner the start, the better for the patient um, and for the patient's partners. Um, among this population, we've seen that it's been, as you might um, assume, a bit more difficult to get people virally suppressed uh, than in the greater population um, of in Massachusetts, so the suppression rates are a bit lower, even amongst people who've been who were diagnosed early on in the cluster investigation, um, than what we see overall. In so, do you have to do, or do you do anything that tries to um, close some of the barriers? Like, you know, if if we got somebody in clinic and wanted to start them, well. Know, it's the 72 hours to get medic. I mean, are there any emergency um, access to medications that? Yes. Yeah, okay. we Can do. you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, so we actually contract with a group 
that um, can provide some emergency access to medications and will pay for it. Um, and um, and we um, and provide access also to partners for PEP and PrEP. Um, and uh, and you know it's still a challenge um, even with that that service and that and and um, and actually that um, com that the group that we contract with are incredibly willing to you know get on the phone at any time of the day and weekend um, to try to link the person and, and pay up front for um, for meds but it's still sometimes a challenge because there's not perfect information, people don't necessarily know about it, um, people don't know that um, it's available, and we're really trying to continue to um, spread the word about it. I guess in New Hampshire, and I don't know that whether providers in New Hampshire are ready to start doing that you know, same day um, prescribing, but what would, it require, what would it require for, say, the ADAP program to say for this category of persons, you know, if it comes to, as with a Rachel referral, um, we'll waive the ADAP requirements for the first 30 days or, you know, get us a, a minimal application, but you don't have to come up with the federal tax forms and all those kind of things. Are, are there, is there any discussion about trying to, say for a certain population of people coming in, we're gonna waive those so they can pick up same day meds? I think that would be a great topic to bring to the medical advisory. I think that would be a great topic to bring. A, a challenge for us in, us in New Hampshire is that we don't receive any state funding. And so other states are able to be flexible with their funding and pay for things like PrEP and PEP um, or emergency um, medication dispensing. But we are, are only getting our funding from HRSA and therefore have to follow their guidelines. So we would have to get a waiver from HRSA to be able to change anything. And I'm not aware of that being um, the case, but it doesn't mean that we should look into it. So I think it's a great suggestion. That does that that often leads us, unfortunately, the money leads us to how we can right. use it, the source. For just to, to follow up on that, for HIV infected, we could probably use 340B funds in mm -hmm. our program. Emergency med supply in that context. We couldn't do it for pet and prep, but for auto homes we could. So we should talk about that internally as well. Because it, it really does seem with the number of injections per day, like it just, uh, and how, you know, if you're, if you're picking up somebody who's still actively using and not necessarily you know, coming out of rehab and saying, now I'm going to take care of my life. I mean, you're sort of drawing in people who are probably pretty pre-contemplative in terms of changes that to, to mm -hmm. seize that moment and try to do, not do harm by not by putting on people meds that they can't stay on. But mm -hmm. I think it, these days the meds are so easy with so few side effects that even people who are really active, I think, can, can have a higher likelihood I think so much of that goes back to housing. It really goes back to housing. Like you can make food available to people, but if they don't have a refrigerator to put it in, um, you know, if they're taking medication, depending on if they have other infections and they have antibiotics that need to be refrigerated, we come into that. You know, housing is um, 
definitely a huge, huge challenge that we faced with this. I, I was also, I was, you addressed this, but I was struck by the, the very few number of um, HIV and to a less extent Hep C testing that's affiliated with syringe exchange, which you would hope would be very high. And is there any discussion about incentives um, either taxi vouchers to get somewhere or, uh, you know, when you get this card stamped, it's a $25 Hannaford's gift card or to, to bring more of those folks in? I can speak for New Hampshire um, in the fact that I think that because they're secondary exchange programs and so they're literally with a backpack or they're set up out of the trunk of their car somewhere, it's a lot harder to facilitate rapid testing even in that environment. Um, and again, they're meeting people where they're at. It's a very harm reduction approach. And just as we learned, or I should say Rachel learned through speaking with all these individuals as contacts, HIV and Hep C were not the priority in their mind. Um, and so they're seeking a syringe service program because they, they want to get um, sterile syringes, sterile needles. Um, part of that might have to do with decreasing the risk of infectious disease, but a lot of it has to do with comfort for them and being able to continue to inject comfortably. Um, and so I think it's the tr that's the trust piece that I think is just going to take time for these programs to build trust, to be able to have those relationships with individuals where they say, okay, you're saying I should go down to the health department and get a test. Well, maybe I'll think about that now, or maybe I'll let you take me now. Um, I think a lot of it also has to do with, it would be great to see these um, syringe pro service programs offering, having their own location nearby to be able to offer testing, because I think we really need to be going to people and meeting them where they're at, rather than expecting them to come to us for everything. Um, and I know that that's some of the model in Massachusetts is it's just delivered right there. Yeah, so um, I think to say a little bit more about the issue of homelessness, it was so key um, that we could actually find people at the homeless encampments. Um, and unfortunately, in both cities there was a, there were policies um, of disrupting those encampments so when the camp encampments sprung up um, they would have um, people come in collect the tents and move people along and for us at, from a public health perspective that was very difficult because if somebody if people were located in a single place we could um, send our mobile um, testing units to those encampments um, we have syringe service programs that could go to them. We could have testing that was actually done right then and there, and then we could find people. Um, and after the tests um, came back, we actually don't pay for rapid testing in Massachusetts, so it's all blood draws. And um, and so when those encampments were disrupted, we then um, had a challenge in finding people and in act and in helping them access the services that we wanted to bring to them sort of a remarkable natural experiment happening where sort of the toxic plume of this epidemic is straddling state lines and then really different amounts of resources and laws and policies, cultures around responses to those. And so one could imagine that the trajectories of the state epidemics could begin in a similar place but go in different directions. And, um, you know, that wouldn't be the first time that um, or for investment has uh, 
increase the size of an epidemic unnecessarily in the United States. I, I wonder if there is, because of that, straddling the state line, an opportunity, perhaps in partnership with an academic partner, to tell the story of that colossal fuck up in a really academic <laughs> way. You know what I mean? Like, to sort of say, hey, here's what it looked like to do some resourcing and have 18 people to do contract tracing, and here's what it looked like to have 2.5 over a you know, smaller number of different similar geographic area, and, and to sort of say, hey, you know, here's what it looks like okay. up close and personal. Is that something that the, you know, the, the CDC or academic partners or I was thinking about Partners Age Research Center would be mm -hmm. uh, engaged in? So, I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. We've had a lot of outreach, actually, uh, from academic partners to, um, who are interested in um, analyzing data um, that we collect in Massachusetts. We haven't had a lot of interest yet in a comparison um, across state lines, but I think some of that has to do with the difference in numbers. I mean, we're seeing a much bigger cluster in Massachusetts um, than experiencing here in New Hampshire. Um, and so that there are probably questions about whether it's, it's comparable or we are able to create um, or make statistically significant conclusions from a comparison. Um, but I think that it's an interesting topic that's something to look into. We're I mean, you're seeing a bigger cluster because you have molecular testing and you know a lot of <coughs> resources. Maybe the cluster is just as big in New Hampshire. So we're hoping that won't be the case, right? When we get our I know. I don't mean to say that. Yeah, I, mean, like, I think you guys are working very hard in, with what limited resources you have. Well, when Kathleen told me they found 40 additional cases through molecular testing, when I got that phone call, I said, oh, no. <laughs> um, but I think that what we're really fortunate for in northern New England especially is that we have these really close relationships with our partner, our counterparts in other states. And so we're talking on a really frequent basis, but we're also connecting um, with the programs in Connecticut and Vermont and Rhode Island and to a certain extent mean and so we know kind of what's going on so that when we started experiencing this I immediately knew what was going on in Massachusetts and had it on my radar to know that we needed to start thinking about what could possibly be happening there you know right now we're also seeing um, we've been seeing increases in gonorrhea for the past couple of years Massachusetts is experiencing the same thing most of northern New England is now we're looking at hepatitis A um, among people who in inject drugs so we, we are seeing this um, connection with injection drug use and infectious disease across the region. And so I think having the opportunity to get together and discuss our different approaches is really helpful to determine how we're gonna continue to address it in the future. So there's a lot more towns than Florence and Lowell and Massachusetts and then Manchester and New Hampshire Obviously, this is going to is happening and will happen tomorrow in, in your town. Are there things that the states are doing to try to identify and use it earlier than, rather than later, using the molecular record, for example, real time or other? Or yeah. fentanyl deaths? Mm -hmm. So um, we, we do have. Uh, access to some um, sentinel surveillance data um, that we're using, so data that is coming out of emergency departments um, that can, that can, um, 
give us information about syndrome, so, um, so opioid-related deaths. Um, and um, we're looking at molecular data, so we have expanded it across the, the state. Um, and we are, it, I wouldn't exactly call it real-time, um, because we have to wait for batches of reports from mostly commercial laboratories. But it's um, you know, much quicker than it ever was before. Uh, and we're trying to pay attention and, um, and link with the folks in um, the Substance Abuse Services Bureau um, and, uh, and, and talk more about, about fentanyl and where we're seeing fentanyl use. But really, at this point, we're seeing fentanyl use across the entire state. And so it's hard now to um, tease out where might be the next place to see it. Um, I, I think that the information about the fentanyl being so inexpensive, especially in Lawrence, um, gave us a better picture of why people were going there to inject drugs. Um, but we don't know, you know, we don't really have a great way of finding out where the next hub might be. And even with the molecular surveillance, which we don't have access to right now, but we're in the process of getting, I still think the epi link piece, you get so much information from a human-to-human -human contact um, and building trust. And, and as medical providers, you have that with these patients, and building that trust is so important. Um, and also setting up, um, we're so fortunate in New Hampshire to have so few people that you can actually say, I've met Rachel, and you know she's going to be reaching out out to you and helping you um, get connected to the services that you need that I think a lot comes from those at least in this case this this particular original patient continued um, to think about which it's hard to ask someone who's um, consistently using drugs to think about who they were with every time they were using them and how many times they may have um, not known if they shared uh, needles um, but to have that relationship building, I still think is really valuable. It's the, the molecular is going to complement it, but it can't possibly replace it. And we're also, when we interview people who inject drugs, when they identify that as a risk, we've added, since, since that outbreak in Lawrence and all, we've added, it's called cluster interviewing, which is, okay, these are the people that maybe you shared needles with, but who else might need a test? So whether they've had contact with them or not, um, and that so far hasn't I, hasn't helped us identify any new cases, but just having that be a, a new practice, I think, would be helpful as far as identifying something more quickly. It's identifying a lot of hepatitis C. Yes. Um, I'm sure you're doing this, but um, my suspicion is that there's a lot of emergency department use among mm -hmm. this population, probably working with the emergency department. I mean, how much can you work with them to actually get rapid HIV testing? You might not catch the cases with the rapid HIV test, but is there, could there be more of a systemic change within the emergency departments to do HIV testing, um, not just in this population, but in other populations? So based on the hand that we sent out in May, have started conversations with a couple um, emergency departments. There are real challenges, as I'm sure 
you're familiar with, and, I, and I'm not aware of rapid HIV or HCV testing routinely being offered here um, in the emergency department, but there's challenges in the follow-up. So the responsibility of the, what I'm being told is the responsibility of the provider to then track down this person to give them the diagnosis, and therefore screening's only taking place if the person is presenting with AIDS symptoms of some OI. And so it was really concerning to learn that, because again, I think that we're dealing with a population where the emergency department is their medical home. That is where they go. It's a quick, quick in and out. Um, they may or may not have insurance coverage, and so we really have a big job ahead of us in transforming how um, medical systems view their role in other um, cultural challenges there. Um, but that's really a, a huge challenge that we're now starting to take on. We don't have dollars to give, and that is the biggest challenge, um, because really if we could embed individuals who just did follow-up um, to track individual to track individuals who test positive down I think we'd, we'd have a better sell but that seems to be the concern is it's it's really for acute care and then go see your PCP but these these folks don't have PCPs yeah. and maybe, maybe this could be like a CMS quality of care guideline national I mean nationally because you know they're not paying hospitals today, if your test comes back, and the patient signs, I mean, if the test comes back positive, someone from the Department of Health, you know, would will be in touch with you with the results, and it's it's racial, and those guys that are giving them positive tests, and taking the burden off of the ER. And we have done that. We, we've, yeah, we've case, done that. I'm the one who gave him his diagnosis, as he had yeah. left, and it wasn't an ED that, that caught it. He had been inpatient, but, um, but they didn't have the right address for him before. So we definitely do that. I, I have concern about the capacity to be able to do that for every emergency department in the state. Um, and also, this is the piece that I feel like we're trying to work out. What's the responsibility of the ordering provider? And how can we support those providers? But um, I have, with only really two full-time folks, I have a hard time saying, yeah, we can follow up on everybody, because we don't know what's going to come out of that. Um, and then there's also much more likely to identify hepatitis C and all those follow-ups um, as well. And that would be thousands of people at this point. So on the other hand, for the HIV, the hep C, I don't know what we do, but if it ends up being a whole heck of a bunch, there are pretty strong arguments that something needs to be done in the way of resources. Mm -hmm. If it's trickling through, start doing this and you start to get you know, one every day <laughs> would be 
easy to go to the legislature and say, you know. We haven't had success with that, but um, it's not that we won't continue to try to, to get resources. Um, we are for, for Maybe the, if they could specify the dollar per life amount that would fit for them, we could give them the right number of people. Right, so we have used that data. Um, the, for the hepatitis C reports that we're receiving now, for the individuals who are um, on that disease report that's coming to us from the provider that, where there is an indication of injection drug use, our public health nurses are following up with those folks to make sure that they're being connected to appropriate care um, and link them to care if possible. And then um, the care coordinators are following up with anyone who's co-infected. So if it's a, if it's a um, concurrent HIV and um, HCV infection, then Rachel and Trevor follow up. But yeah, we have a lot of work to do, and a lot of that can be done by individuals who don't work for the state. And so it's always an opportunity to um, let your concerns be known to, to our lawmakers of the challenges of not having state dollars because we are really limited in what we can do. All right, any last questions? I wanted, since you uncovered that one of the reasons that Lowell and Lawrence were hit so hard was because of the cheap drugs, are you using that information looking forward now, how the drug market's changing and where people are moving to get their drugs? So we're, we're trying to, and we're trying to um, partner with the Bureau of Substance um, and Addiction Services is what we have to, have, uh, to, uh, to gain that information, but it does lag um, behind, so it's really hard to know it in real time. Um, we have some community partners, actually, um, in police departments and first responders um, who we started to work with and meet with during our community engagement process. Um, one of, uh, Lowell actually has a, a great team of individuals who all actually have personal connections to the opioid epidemic. Um, and, and the team includes a firefighter, an EMS worker, a police officer, and they, um, are called upon to respond um, to overdoses, to places where overdoses have occurred, so in, in communities or homeless encampments. Um, and they've really communicated well with us and let us know um, when more public health outreach and testing outreach is um, needed and where it's needed. But, you know, that's in those certain communities. We, we don't really have something um, that, that that exists and works well throughout the state, um, but um, we're, we're, we continue to try to work with the, with the communities to. Do you do you have any community active, actively using community members that are informants, if you will? So we have certain uh, of the communities have um, advocates uh, and community members um, that they that that they work closely with. Um, and that they can um, employ to, to help uh, spread knowledge about safe injection practices. Okay. Um, but we don't directly employ any of those. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, that, that was great. Thank you for both of us.